Welcome to the ASHP Advantage Podcast, engaging the experts on ASHP Official, featuring conversations with top-level practitioners about the latest issues in pharmacy and healthcare. Thanks for joining us in this episode of Pharmacy Hot Topics, where we sit down with content master experts and discuss what is currently top of mind in the world of pharmacy. My name is Jennifer Clements, and I am Clinical Professor and Director of Pharmacy Education at the University of South Carolina College of Pharmacy in Greenville. And I'm joined today uh, by Diana Isaacs, who is Clinical Pharmacy Specialist and also Director of Education and Training in Diabetes Technology at the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland. Today's episode is part of the ASHP Advantage podcast series, Engaging the Experts, featuring conversations with top-level practitioners. This episode is supported by Nova Nordis and is informational purposes only and not approved for continuing education credit. So Diana, thanks for joining me today and let's get started with today's topic on pharmacotherapy for obesity. The first thing I wanted to discuss was lifestyle modifications. Since we're discussing pharmacotherapy, it's important that we remember their adjunct with lifestyle modifications. And often in clinical trials, you know, they had to have reduced their calories by 500, um, also gotten more physical activity. That's very common in all these clinical trials. But I think I wanted to kind of get your input on intensive lifestyle modifications because I feel like some of the more recent evidence, maybe even with trisepatide, we're seeing kind of more intensive approaches uh, with lifestyle modifications than we've seen in other trials. So what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and I think there's two trials specifically that we can really learn a lot from. So the first one's actually the step three trial with semaglutide. And this was the effects of semaglutide versus placebo as adjunct to intensive behavioral therapy on body weight in adults with overweight or obesity. And so basically, they randomized patients to either semaglutide 2.4 or placebo. And this was combined with a very low-calorie diet for the first eight weeks and intensive behavioral therapy. It was actually 30 counseling sessions during the 68 weeks. And so people were advised to have a very low calorie diet, anywhere from 1,000 to 1,200 calories per day. This was usually in the form of meal replacements for at least two of the meals. And then they transitioned to um, a slightly higher calorie, like 1,200 to 1,800 calories. And they were also advised to try to get at least 100 minutes of physical activity initially and try to raise that to 200 minutes per week. So what we found in this trial, and keep in mind, both groups had the intensive lifestyle changes, but only one group had the semaglutide, was that the group that had the semaglutide had much more uh, weight loss. So actually, uh, body weight was reduced 16% with the semaglutide versus 5.7% with the intensive lifestyle. And so I think this shows us that adding lifestyle to semaglutide definitely increases the effect and you get much more effect than lifestyle alone. And there was another trial with terzepatide called the Surmount 3. And this trial was done a little bit differently. This was also a double-blind randomized control trial 
where everybody started off with 12 weeks of intensive lifestyle intervention. And it was very similar to the intervention that you just heard about with semaglutide, low-calorie diet, incorporating physical activity, and a lot of follow-up with the healthcare team. And then those that lost at least 5% of their body weight after 12 weeks were randomized to terzepatide or to just continue with the lifestyle modifications. And actually those that transitioned to terzepatide in total lost 18.4% of their body weight. And those that transitioned to placebo actually ended up gaining 2.5% of their body weight. So I think we clearly see incorporating intensive lifestyle with these agents very beneficial and more beneficial than the intensive lifestyle by itself. Yeah, that's great. Great information. Thank you for sharing. The next topic I wanted to kind of mention and discuss briefly was really how long do we use pharmacotherapy? Because if we look at the pool of all the clinical trials we have for weight loss medications, some of them go pretty short, um, all the way to 68 weeks, 72 weeks. Now we see some with 88 weeks, but there's also some that go two years. And I do remember with loraglutide as Saxenda, one of their trials went up to three years. So we see some variation. I think what the question becomes in clinical practice is how do we treat lifelong when when the clinical trials are only three years? I mean, obesity is a chronic disease state, and therefore we should treat it like any other chronic condition where we think about treatment indefinitely. And I know that sometimes is a hard question because we also know from clinical trials that if you stop the medicine, they're, they're going to gain weight back. And depending on the agent, they could go back right where they started before being randomized to treatment, or they kind of get halfway there. And so I think this is a big discussion. And I'm wondering, you know, what are your thoughts that in my point of view, we do need to treat lifelong. Maybe that also means that we don't just completely stop the drug, that maybe we kind of go to the next dose down to still maintain something if someone's achieved their weight loss or, you know, they've reached their percent, they've plateaued or something, you know, whatever the situation is, that I don't think we should be withdrawing it completely, just kind of de-escalating a little bit and keeping it on to, you know, make sure we're treating lifelong. So, What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's another great question. And it's true that for overweight and obesity, two years is about what we have data on. Although if we look at the diabetes literature, we know we've got trials that are out to like five years. For example, dulaglutide with the Rewind study and those cardiovascular outcomes, patients were on it for a long period of time. So I think we can feel pretty comfortable with the safety. And obesity is a chronic condition. So I think it's good to set expectations that these really are meant to be uh, chronic medications. And everything that we know so far indicates the safety of these long-term. And the longer that they're out, we'll continue to develop some data, uh, likely retrospective, but we'll be able to look at more of that. Now, there are some considerations, certainly when people do reach their goals. Um, I like what you suggested. We definitely sometimes will lower the dose. Um, and 
Sometimes I, I think that what we do see is that people plateau or even may gain some weight after continued use. And some of the approaches we've taken is as maybe more potent agents come out, for example, those that were on liraglutide and then semaglutide came out, right? We've transitioned them. If they're on a lower dose, sometimes trying a higher dose, sometimes going to a lower dose and then going back up. So there's definitely different things we'll continue to learn. But I think expectations, these are meant to be chronic medications. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely appreciate you sharing maybe, you know, the insight into we're kind of moving down that path of more impactful medications. And, you know, we know that established pharmacotherapy it, you know, has produced less weight loss than our newer agents that we've seen over the past couple of years. And, and kind of what's in the pipeline, you know, is very promising that if they're on something, I like that if they're on liraglutide, switching them to something else because it's more impactful weight loss. Yeah. And it's very exciting because we've got like triple agonist in the works. There's definitely a lot of agents yeah. in the pipeline. So we'll be able to continue this approach. Right. Yeah. Now, I kind of wanted to switch and talk about some specific agents, because one of the questions that has come up recently that I hear about, and I think it's also because there's some news article, you know, news articles being published about it, is really these psych psychiatric adverse events with semaglutide and trisepatide. So if we specifically look in the label for let's say Wagovi as semaglutide 2.4, there is the warning and precaution of suicidal behavior and ideation where it states, you know, you monitor for depression or suicide thoughts and discontinue if symptoms develop. If we look at Zetbound as trisepatide, you know, they have the same warning and precaution. It says monitor for depression or suicidal thoughts, discontinue if symptoms develop. And I know that this is kind of, I feel like, a little bit up in the air um, to me. I don't really know the exact mechanism or the theory behind it. It does make sense that if this is a warning and precaution, you know, if someone has depression and it's not well treated, you know, we have to question, is this the right time to start uh, these medications? But then also, if they have a history of a suicidal attempt, is this, again, going to be the best agent? However, I've also seen some, you know, couple of reports that say this may not be the case, that this may not be an adverse event or a warning or precaution. So I feel like we're in this state of maybe some conflicting evidence. And I'm just curious from your point of view, especially in an endocrinology office where you're probably using these agents quite often, like how do you address this in clinical practice with your patients? Yeah, I think it's important to note that this is based on um, reports to the to the FDA when using the agents. And what we don't know, there's a, there's a million confounding variables, like someone had a history of depression or other things going on in their lives, and it happened to, to concur at the same time that they started this agent. So the FDA has looked into this and so far really has not found a direct link between these agents and the suicidal ideation and depression and anxiety. That being said, they are evaluating this more. Um, there'll hopefully be some meta-analyses and things coming out. 
in the clinical trials, this wasn't observed. And so at this point, we don't really know that there is definitively any association. Um, and in fact, these agents actually are showing promise for things like addiction treatment and treating dementia. So I think that in clinical practice, I have not observed this to be a major problem. That being said, someone that has depression, I think it's a great idea to make sure that they are treated, that they're well controlled, that they're getting help for their condition um, before starting the agent would kind of probably try to, would be the best absolute approach. But I'm just not convinced that there's definitely an association here with these agents. Right. Now, in, in speaking of these specific drugs too, semaglutide and trisepatide, there's always the question of drug-drug interactions. And, you know, with semaglutide, we know it can slow gastric emptying and there's caution when someone is taking oral medications. With trisepatide, we know there's also the specific language about, you know, changing to a non-oral contraceptive or using the barrier method, particularly um, when you initiate and four weeks after and when you go up on the doses because of that drug-drug interaction. And to me, you know, I feel like from what I understand and what I've been told that, you know, whenever you do slow the gastric emptying, you have to be cautious overall with any oral medication. And I know it's like, this is very specific language with trisepatide and not so specific with semaglutide, but I feel like the FDA probably dictated what goes in each package insert. And so, you know, I think there's caution either way because of the mechanism and we want people to be safe with their oral medications. But what is your clinical experience when it comes to these drug-drug interactions between semaglutide and trisepatide? Yeah, so with the oral contraceptives, um, that's very specific to terzepatide. There is some literature with semaglutide showing safety with the oral, or at least showing it's not affecting the uh, oral or the semaglutide or the oral, sorry, <laughs> there is there is um, information showing that it's not affecting the oral contraceptive. So with trisepatide, this is a very important counseling point that I find not everyone is aware of. Essentially what it means is for at least eight weeks after starting, there should be some backup method because you figure you're going to be starting at the 2.5 milligram dose. Most often you're going to go up to the five milligram dose. So that's at least eight weeks. And then if you're planning to go higher after that, it's going to be longer. So that's a very important counseling point, especially as we see more women of childbearing age that um, live with overweight and obesity that may be taking these agents. Um, one other thing I, I do want to point out is with actually the oral semaglutide. And I recognize this is not FDA approved for weight management. It's approved for diabetes, but there is a higher dose, the 25 and 50 milligrams that's being studied for obesity. And so it's a very real possibility we could have this available in the future. And that one has very specific dosing where it has to be taken on an empty stomach. Um, you can't eat or drink or have any other medications within 30 minutes, or it's going to affect really the efficacy of the semaglutide. 
And so I think that is an important interaction that we clinically see. I've seen so many people waste their drug by not following these directions, by splitting it or taking it with other meds at the same time. So I, I do think that's a very relevant one that we see in, in practice. Yeah. And again, I, I appreciate you highlighting that. I think we have some, you know, great things in the pipeline, you know, drugs that are currently available for different indications and potentially being used at higher doses, but then it just then goes back to what we talked about with, you know, triagonists or any other medication in combination with new agents um, to promote weight loss. So it's going to be very promising to see what the future holds. Now with weight loss medications, uh, from my experience in primary care, I would always consider the cycling of medications. For example, you know, I, I often had providers that I worked with that would do these cycles of fentiramine. So uh, fentiramine being such a short-term use, 12 weeks, they would write the prescription and give it to the individual for 12 weeks. And then after that time, the person would take maybe um, another 12-week break and then write another prescription. So there was this cycle of on and off, on and off. And as that example, you know, you get worried about tachyphylaxis, so meaning that they lose weight when they're on the medication, but then when they come off, they're going to gain some weight. But then the next time you use it, they still lose weight. It's just not as much as the first time that they got that medication. And so I'm curious from your perspective in an endocrinology office, you know, do you see cycling on and off medications? Um, you don't have to refer to fentiramine specifically, but any of them in general, are you guys considering on and off? Whereas before we talked about, you know, this being a treatment lifelong. So I'm just very curious from your perspective. Yeah, well, with fentramine, we used to have laws in Ohio that limited our use beyond 12 weeks. So it was very common, maybe not on purpose, to cycle through it, have patients on it for 12 weeks, sometimes 24 if we split the dose, go off of it and come back on. But to your point, often the second time, third time, the repeated use, the, the weight loss is not as significant. Now, when it comes to the GLP-1 receptor agonists, I would say that we usually don't cycle on purpose. Unfortunately, we know related to cost and access and shortages that sometimes that leads to patients taking a break from it and then resuming it. Uh, cycling with these agents, I would say, is not optimal because they are really intended to be chronic use. And very, very commonly, we see that when patients discontinue it, they regain weight. And so we have to be very, very careful with that. That being said, I have seen benefit in someone who is at a plateau with their current dose, going down on the dose for a little bit, and then going back up again. And sometimes they get that little kind of, I don't know, it it helps them because they've, they've gone down and they've gone back up again and it kind of helps further suppress their appetite and gives them a little bit of a boost. So we've tried things like that off-label. Um, I've also had patients that might, they're, they've kind of reached their weight loss goal and might uh, spread it out a little more instead of doing it every week, doing it every other week, sometimes every three weeks. These are very off-label things. 
um, that we're continuing to learn. But in general, I would say cycling with these agents is not something that has demonstrated. It's not something we should be regularly doing. Right. And, you know, I think with cycling, we'd have to evaluate the gastrointestinal adverse events, too. And, you know, we know that you'll get more gastrointestinal adverse events with higher doses, but then you also get more weight loss because, you know, of dose dependent uh, factors that we've seen in clinical trials. So, yeah, I would have to think it kind of complicates things, too, depending on what dose you're able to do in the cycling. Now, I think a question that does come up, we don't we don't have a lot of good, you know, large randomized control trials on this subject, but it's really maybe some smaller non-randomized, you know, reports out there in the literature about weight loss medications in combination with bariatric surgery. Most likely that this is after surgery where they've lost a significant amount of weight and they probably started to plateau. I could see then considering weight loss medications. And particularly if we think of GLP-1 receptor agonists, I may be hesitant immediately after surgery because it depends on what type of intervention for bariatric surgery. There's already gonna be so many changes um, in terms of what they eat, you know, and again, depending on the intervention, you know, that could have a severe effect or cause more adverse events, um, again, because they have to be cautious with what they eat, when they eat, what they drink. I do want to make note, though, that we have to look at people before bariatric surgery. If they're on a GLP-1 receptor agonist, the American Society of Anesthesiologists now have recommended that these medications be held before a surgical intervention. So if they're on loraglutide, it's held you know, a day before the day of surgery, whereas the once weekly GLP-1 receptor agonists are held one week prior to surgery. Most hospitals don't have these on formulary. So with that all being said, I'm curious, you know, from your perspective and in an endocrinology clinic, are you guys using weight loss medications uh, kind of in a post-state? And if you do, when is that post-state, meaning after bariatric surgery? Are you looking at three months after, six months after? So what do you guys do in your clinic? Yeah, well, I think a lot of times patients that are candidates for bariatric surgery, we have them on GLP-1 receptor agonists prior, and that's very beneficial. And to your point, we do make sure we discontinue them at least a week prior to the surgery if it's a weekly agent. In terms of after, so I think bariatric surgery has actually shown that it's associated with increased GLP-1 signaling. That's probably one of the mechanisms that helps to facilitate the weight loss. So using it right after surgery is, I would say, not necessary. And we really have to be very cautious because generally a person's appetite is so reduced, they are not able to eat as much and and have proper nutrition and everything. And they're generally already losing a lot of weight. And so that would not be the optimal time to start it. But we know that these these patients eventually will hit a plateau. And many of them will go on to actually regain some of the weight. And that is the point where the GLP-1 receptor agonist can be very, very beneficial. And so it's really at that point that we add it. And we've had great success with doing that. It's an absolutely great 
agent. And so in terms of the timing, this will really be different. Um, for some, it could be, you know, years and years after their surgery. For some, it, it may be a little bit closer. But yeah, we're not generally going to use it right after, but down the line, it is a great therapeutic option. Yeah, I agree. Well, you know, my last question is, we've talked a lot about the medications. Um, the biggest thing we know as a barrier is that it's somewhat difficult to get or there's a high cost associated with it. You know, a lot of insurance plans may not cover these agents because they may see that weight loss is more of a cosmetic reason, where again, it's the mindset that we need to be treating this as a chronic disease state, just like the American Medical Association said more than 10 years ago. And so some insurance plans too, especially with hospitals I know, have dropped these particular medications because it drove up their budget and they spent more money than they expected on their own employees. I'm hoping though that all this does change. I mean, with evidence like the select trial, so semaglutide 2.4 milligrams and the three-point mace for cardiovascular events and that evidence that just came out late last year, I'm hoping that would be the driving force or the start to see the change. Um, but we also know that change takes a while in healthcare. So when that could be, I don't know. I would hope that we would see something in the next two years at least. So we know this is definitely a barrier. There's a high cost due to lack of coverage. But what are some of your practical tips in clinical practice to help lower that cost or get that patient, that person, the medication. So all about the access. Yeah, this is a really tough one because the cost is really high, generally around $1,100 a month. And it's understandable that insurance plans, um, not everyone's covering it because it's a really difficult situation. If it's covered for all those that qualify, which is a lot of people, then premiums are going to go up for everyone. And so the cost is, is really we don't have a great solution on how to address this. Um, if the cost can come down of the agent, that would definitely help. I think that if insurance plans could set maybe some boundaries, like you have to demonstrate weight loss, and if you do, you can continue. If not, then it, it may not be covered. Those might be some approaches. But in terms of in the moment, how can people access these? There are some cost savings programs with the different agents. Generally, they all have some type of copay card that people with commercial insurance can obtain. And so we should always be directing people to these copay cards if they have commercial insurance. It, it is variable. It doesn't mean, even though they may say as low as $25 per month, it doesn't mean the person will get it. It depends a lot if it's on their formulary or not. And so it, it may take it down. For example, in the case of like with terzepatide, it can take, you can save up to like over $500 off of it, but that may mean it's still almost $600 a month, right? So it still can be a difficult choice for patients to determine if they're able to afford that. Uh, there are some patient assistance programs, although they are generally, they can be limited. So like, for example, in the case of um, Novo Nordisk, right now they're covering the diabetes medication. So they're covering Ozempic, Rebelsis, Victoza, but at this time, Wegovi and Saxenda are not covered. And then with Lilies, right now, at least, um, probably related to some of the shortages and stuff, unfortunately, uh, Trizepatide and Dulaglutide 
um, are both not available through that program. So um, we don't necessarily have great <laughs> answers at this time for it. Um, but we're definitely, hopefully we'll see more advocacy and improved access, especially related to these amazing outcomes, like you said, with the SELECT trial and showing those cardiovascular outcomes. Yeah. Well, I just want to say this was very insightful discussion. I think we discussed a lot in terms of, you know, general key points about pharmacotherapy for weight loss, but then the specific agents that we have available couple in the past two years with semaglutide 2.4 milligrams and then trisepatide, you know, very impactful agents for weight loss. But of course, we highlighted that there are some risks or considerations with each of those agents, depending on what you're looking at, especially the person in front of you. It's all about that person-centered approach and even getting down to cost because we know that is a person-specific factor and we want them to get the medication, but we sometimes have to be creative or think outside the box. But that's all the time that we have today. And again, I'm Jennifer Clements, and I really want to thank Diana Isaacs for joining me today for this great discussion. We hope you learned and enjoyed today's conversation and be sure to subscribe to ASHP podcast through your favorite podcast provider. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for the ASHP Advantage podcast, engaging the experts. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time for more expert perspectives on ASHP Official.